Uh, once again, it was a delight, uh, delight this morning to hear uh, from the three of you, uh, confirmation class students, uh, to uh, hear just a, at least a short excerpt of each of your statements of faith. As John noted, there are hard copies of the students' full, uh, and they are full statements of faith in the uh, lobby or the narthex. You can grab one of those on your way out if you're interested. If you want to read more, get to know them more, be encouraged by their faith more, the same uh, document or collection of document statements will also be emailed to you uh, after worship if you are on our general email list. As I read through uh, the students' full statements of faith uh, this week, and I read through all of them uh, multiple times, I noticed a variety of different things each time I read through those. One thing I noticed each time, though, every time, though, was within their statements of faith, uh, they were loaded with Scripture, with references to Scripture, and to quotes of particular verses and passages of Scripture, just loaded. And so uh, the third time or so I went through, I just decided to count, because I'm a counter. 112 times between your three statements of faith, 112 references, specific references to or quotes from Scripture. Pretty impressive. Bam. What I didn't see, though, and what was not there, what is not there, was any direct or indirect reference to the book of Leviticus. Which is not totally surprising. In some ways, uh, it is uh, an unusual book. It can be hard to slog through. Many people have set out to read the entire Bible, sort of start to finish in one smooth motion, and just get uh, sort of stuck and bogged down in the mud of Leviticus. It's confusing. It's unusual. It's from a different culture, different time, weird stuff, a lot of stuff about sacrifices. And people just often get up. It's sort of the graveyard of read through the Bible in a year, people. But the book of Leviticus, the third book in the Bible, the third, the middle of the five books of Moses is actually loaded with really cool stuff, really rich stuff, really important stuff. So this morning, I'm going to start in the book of Leviticus. We're going to go on a little bit from there, but I'm going to start in Leviticus in chapter 19, which is this really, really, really rich chapter, kind of wooden, but really, really rich and just loaded with uh, these little nuggets of truth. Could easily be a dozen sermons, but we're going to keep it to one just this morning and focus on two little bitty verses at the beginning of chapter 19. But before we read those, let me pray. God, we ask that you would help us uh, to be attentive to your word and to your spirit, to your truth and to your grace. As we open your word, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are receptive soil. Uh, prepare us for the things that you would have us know and become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way, shape, or form from your holy word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. In the name of Jesus, amen. So from the book of Leviticus, listen closely, chapter 19, this is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them these words, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And I don't know what just those few words conjure up for you in your minds. For me, they set this really, really high bar, simple, short, but really almost impossibly high bar. 
Be holy like God is holy. Wow. How does one do that? How does one muster up that much holiness? The people who know me well know that I just have small grains, bits and sort of random pieces of holiness within me and about me. How does one muster up that much holiness? I picture monks walking around with their hands together deep in prayer, maybe chanting the Psalms as they go in their sort of quiet, reflective holiness, being careful not to take a wrong step, to step on a bug and kill something of God's wonderful creation, to say an unholy word, to think an unholy thought, to have a selfish thought, to even think about criticizing a referee or just sort of even rooting against LeBron James, like, like being really whole, never rolling through stop signs, never getting frustrated with Comcast Infinity, never being seduced by those uh, fudge-covered pretzels at Trader Joe's. Like just, just sheer holiness, unwavering. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we read this over and over and over in different uh, forms and different sort of ways of putting together the sentences in the book of Leviticus. Be holy because God is holy. But this word holy, not holy as having a lot of holes, and not holy as in uh, completely or fully, but holy, this word in Hebrew, the language in which the Old Testament was written, this word kadosh literally means literally set apart. Say that with me, set apart. The Hebrew lexicons agree that there was this aspect of the word kadosh that meant sacred or holy or holy one or saint, but kadosh also very, meant, very much meant to set apart, to be set apart, something that is set apart for a purpose, to be set apart for God's purposes, for God's glory, for God's use, or simply for God to God which for example is how a pot or a utensil in God's tabernacle could be described as holy, as things like that were. In the book of Leviticus, the books of Moses, over the course of the history of the Jewish people, things as simple as a pot or utensils could be described as holy because they were set apart for God, for God's glory, for God's purposes. Were the pots or the utensils in the tabernacle morally upstanding? No, no, they were just metal pots and wooden utensils. So they were set apart for God's, they were dedicated to God's glory, holy kadosh. So when God through Moses and through the book of Leviticus called God's people to be holy, to be set apart, God's people were being called to uh, a certain moral uprightness and moral character or moral distinction from the people around them. Sure, a moral and... Uh, sort of a ethical distinction from the nations around them, the peoples around them, the cultures around them, which were always infringing on them, which were always threatening to influence them with all of their idols and idolatry and pagan practices, to, threatening to absorb them and to conquer and crush them. The nations, the peoples, the cultures that surrounded God's people were continually pressing in, exerting influence on them, seeking or threatening to shape or reshape or distort who they were, how they understood themselves, their worldviews, their faith, 
their values, their lifestyles, their way. So to be holy, yes, it was to obey the law of God, sure, but it also meant to be fully or completely dedicated to God and to God alone, to be distinct from other purposes, other uh, uses, other realities, to be set apart for God and God alone. Uh, to be holy, uh, set apart for God and God alone. And that to which God called his people through Moses and through the book of Leviticus more than 3,000 years ago, God continued to call his people in Jesus' time. Even Peter quotes this line from Leviticus. Be holy. Peter, on you, on you, Rocky, I will build my church. And Peter is quoting, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed and asked his father not to take his disciples, followers, friends out of the world, but that God would protect them from the world so that they would be set apart. They were in the world, but not of the world, in the world, but set apart for God, which is often the most challenging part of being in Christ, is it not? Especially in middle school, high school, in our youth. In the world, but set apart for God. How do I live a set-apart life? How do I be completely dedicated to God to be his always, right where I am in this reality, in this space, in my neighborhood, in my world, my life? Which often means going against the flow, saying no among one's peers when everyone else is saying yes, or saying yes among one's peers when everyone else is saying no. Refusing to compromise when the pressures get high. Standing up when everyone is sitting down. Sitting down when everyone is standing up. Speaking up when everyone is silent. And there's more. Be perfect, Jesus said, as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus' close disciple Peter quotes Leviticus. Jesus does something a little bit different with that. Not so much quoting Leviticus, but putting his own little twist on that. Jesus, a lover of the law, faithful to the book of the law, high regard for the law, and yet takes be holy as God, the Lord your God, is holy and makes it instead be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What? If holiness was up here, perfection seems to be up there. How do I even do that? Holy seemed hard enough. Jesus is now raising the bar even higher to the highest possible place. It's in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus tells his disciples these words, be perfect as your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father is perfect. You remember that maybe in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter five of Matthew's Gospel, verse 48. But two things are worth noting here. The Greek word translated perfect in English is teleos, from which we get the word or words like telescope. And teleos means brought to its end, the Greek lexicon say, brought to its end, distant but arriving. Uh, arriving at an end, finished or finishing, complete, full grown, mature as it pertains to human beings. Full grown or mature, lacking nothing, nothing necessary for completeness, having arrived, rather than so much 100% moral or ethical perfection. Mature, complete, having arrived, yes. And the context, 
First, the most important thing in understanding is the meaning of that word teleos, but then also understanding its context, which was this in chapter five, Sermon on the Mount of Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven, be in right relationship with. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Not, and are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven or your heavenly Father is perfect or perfectly mature or having arrived. But then Jesus takes this well-known verse from Leviticus and just spins it just a tiny, tiny bit. Be holy because I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, and holy be set apart for God. God is set apart. What does that look like? How do we do that? How is a person set apart? In what ways, according to Jesus now, is God most holy, unique, distinct, set apart from all others? He is uniquely different above all things and in every way in his love. His capacity to love, his will to love, his character to love, that he is, as the scriptures say, straightforward. In John's first letter, God is love. Aim for complete maturity, therefore, Jesus is saying, in one's love for others, because that's how God is. Aim for complete maturity, adulthood, arrive at the final destination of being love, because that's how and who God is. And you remember that to love, according to the scriptures, is not primarily about a romantic inclination toward another person or romantic feelings towards someone or something. And to love someone is not primarily about feelings or emotions, though love, even in the biblical sense, is not devoid of feelings or emotions. But to love someone is to wish them well, and more than that, to act on another's behalf, to be committed to another's overall health and well-being, through one's thoughts and one's words and one's actions and one's resources and one's time. Last Sunday morning, we read some of Jesus' words in chapter 15 of John's gospel, and we talked about union with Christ. I don't know if you remember that. Spend a little time on union or being one with Christ the previous two weeks. I'd like to read some of those verses again from chapter 15, again, sort of applying or thinking about what we're talking about this morning therein. Jesus said, chapter 15, John's gospel, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, they can do nothing. There's this remain, this dwelling, this abiding together, togetherness, oneness. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain, dwell, abide in me and my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love, dwell in his love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. This is my command, love one another. Jesus talks about this union, abide in me, I will abide in you. Remain in me, I will remain in you. Dwell in me and I will dwell in you. This union with Christ and at the heart of all of that is love and this command to love and this call to love and being in love which Jesus defines as laying down one's life for one's friends, not having romantic feelings and big heartbeats, though that may go along with it, but laying down one's life for one's friends. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
My command is this, love as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. So over the past five months, confirmation class students, you have attended and listened and engaged and learned and asked and studied and memorized and reflected and declared, finally. And your statements of faith are amazing. They're truly remarkable. They're articulate. They're mature. They're thoughtful. They're thorough. They're biblically and theologically solid. But please don't understand the confirmation class process or goal, now or later or ever. Neither you nor us nor the whole congregation. God's greatest desire to you and for you and from you, and hopefully also the churches, is not the completion of a stellar statement of faith but that you be transformed by and in and into God's love. And the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord, as Paul wrote to the Romans. So when I say that and think about that again, as you've finished and are finishing in some ways confirmation class and making your public declaration of faith, as you've accumulated all of this information, And as we accumulate information, as we listen to sermons, read the Bible, don't think that that is God's goal for us, but rather his goal for us, not so much information, but transformation, and transformation by and in and through and into and becoming love, his love. The purpose of confirmation class for young people and of discipleship or mentorship for the rest of us in Jesus is not the production of an informed, if not impeccable statement of correct doctrine, but instead the renovation of our hearts by God's grace and in Christ so that we become or are becoming people who love and love itself. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, the person who loves is a participant in the being of God. Think about it. The person who loves is a participant in the being of God. Who is love? I like that. Rather than statements of faith, maybe we should be producing statements of intention. Intention to love. In the words of pastor and author Robin Myers, yes. Consider this remarkable fact in the Sermon on the Mount on which we spent or with which we spent five months. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. Consider this remarkable fact. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's not a single word about what to believe, only about words, only words about what to do and how to be. By the time the Nicene Creed is written only three centuries later, There is not a single word in it in the Nicene Creed about what to do and how to be, only words about what to believe. Isn't that interesting how we took what Jesus said and made it into not calls to love, but just things to believe and to agree with and to make assent to. It was Jesus, you remember, who said unequivocally, People will know that you are my disciples, not by your statements of faith, but by the way that you love one another. 
right? Even as super important and good as our, uh, theirs and ours, our statements of faith, our Apostles' Creed, our statement of what we believe on our website as a church, as important as those things are. On Thursday evening, you, the three of you, met with Waypoint elders and you officially became members of the congregation, really wonderful. But more important than that has been and is and will be your becoming love. And that's exciting. The past week I went to two, actually three, but we'll think about two, end of school year award ceremonies at a local high school, which are a lot of fun. And I got to witness the giving of all sorts of awards to just tons and tons of students. One evening it was just to graduating students. Uh, another evening it was to uh, students across all of the grades. And students received awards for excelling in math and excelling in science. Students received awards for running the fastest and jumping the highest. Students received awards for being the first in their family to be headed to higher education. Students received awards for competing in three different sports in one academic school year. Students received awards for excelling in Mandarin and Spanish and Japanese for being the best in their grade in languages. All sorts of awards, but no one received an award. There wasn't a single recognition for loving their neighbors, much less loving their enemies. Though I'm sure many of those students and lots of other students, some of those who received those awards and some of them who didn't, do love their neighbors, care about other people. I just thought it was a little ironic. There was no award for exhibiting kindness. Not a single one of hundreds of students that were given awards. There wasn't an award for exhibiting kindness, for caring for others, for denying oneself, for serving the poor, for quiet and private acts of mercy, for emptying oneself on behalf of others, Instead, the awards were for setting records and reaching great heights, for writing great papers and doing great products, for crushing exams and acquiring A's and GPAs, all of which are fine and good. But the scriptures say that if you want to excel at something, excel at love. If you're going to excel at just one thing, Paul is super clear. Jesus is super clear. Excel at love. Imagine a school where there was an award at the end of each academic year for loving one's neighbors. Maybe there is. I hope there is. That'd be great. Imagine a school where there's an award for loving one's enemies. Maybe there is. I hope there is. I don't know that school. That would be awesome. Confirmation class students, the scriptures say, God says, be holy, be set apart to God, for God. And what does that look like? Not so much religion or going to church or memorizing books of the Bible in order, writing stellar statements of faith, being ethically and morally flawless, but instead growing into maturing and becoming adults in love. 
and one's inward and outward demonstrated, tangible, active, lived love for others. Be perfect in love as your heavenly Father is perfect in love. This is the journey not that you've completed, but that you've taken another step in. Students and congregation, you have been remarkably blessed. You are intelligent, gifted, bright, a friend to your friends, well-resourced, blessed with amazing families, faithful to what you know. Now, if you want to excel at something even greater, excel in love. Be the kids who notice, the students who day after day sit alone at lunch, be the kids who stand up for the socially awkward misfit, who other students mock and bully. Be the kids who are first to greet the students who transfer into your school mid-semester, mid-stream, and don't know anyone. Be the students who write thank you notes to all of your teachers. Be the students who bake cookies for the teacher that no one likes and the other students disdain. Be the students who build others up rather than tear other people down. Be the students who build bridges instead of walls. Be the students who unite rather than divide. Be the people who turn enemies into friends. Be the people who are becoming love, and you will do well. Let's pray. We are broken and frail and flawed. In so many ways, God, we confess that to you. We arrive here as sinners and we will depart as sinful people. But be at work transforming us in your love to love and becoming love. In your grace, by the power of your spirit, according to the lead and the teaching of Jesus, his way and his modeling, grow us in people who know that we're loved, and out of that and in that, respond in love to parents and children and peers and friends and neighbors and strangers and enemies. Help us, God, to be wholly set apart to you, for you, in your kingdom. And help us, Heavenly Father, to grow toward perfection and adulthood and maturity in our self-denying love for others. And in all of this, may we find great joy and may you be greatly glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.